0: Hello, everyone. Welcome to Cyber Inspiration Podcast. My name is Evgeny. I've been around security for the last 20 years. I have a lot of experience working with a variety of cybersecurity vendors, and my main work is vendor consulting and advisory. As part of my passion in technology and cyber, I always intrigued to learn how companies start. I started the podcast to understand the thinking process and what motivated people to start their own company. This podcast is also affiliated with Security Architecture Podcast. I have a pleasure today to talk to Sheshna about his company and his journey. Can you please tell me about yourself and the company?
1: Hi, Evgeny. Well, thanks for having me on the show. Really appreciate you getting me on board here. You've got an interesting podcast going. Uh, yeah, to start with the story, really, I'm someone who spent two decades uh, in the industry. And as I like to say, it's kind of split half-half. My one initial journey was on Wall Street. And the second phase, which has been over a decade now, has been in Silicon Valley. And in both places, largely, I think of myself as an explorer. I've been going from one interesting sort of journey to the other and essentially learning and growing and building some interesting companies along the way. You will certainly hear a bit more about that in today's podcast in terms of all the different journeys that I've touched upon or things that I've picked up or things that I've impacted, uh, stuff that I've learned. Uh, But I really think of myself as someone who's been enjoying this journey and just learning every day, including this morning, right? So absolutely, yeah, that's who I am.
0: Great, thank you. So Uno is relatively, yeah, can you do an elevator pitch what Uno does?
1: Yes, absolutely. Yeah, Uno is the sort of the latest passion or the latest company that I co-founded with an incredibly smart engineer about a year back. Uh, The thesis of UNO is pretty simple. I mean, what we believe is that there are a numerous number of tools out there that are being built for cybersecurity professionals to become smarter, better, faster, more efficient. But the problem is that there aren't so many smart cybersecurity professionals that exist there who are equipped to use the tools gainfully and then essentially end up having a better cybersecurity posture or understand the threats better or just manage them better. So our thesis is that we aren't building yet another tool for a cybersecurity analyst, we are building a cybersecurity analyst. And so essentially you can think of this tool as an expert system. It is an expert system tool that really ends up going deeper into the realm of root cause analysis, investigation, a lot of simulation, a lot of understanding, a lot of piecing of the various pieces together to really make sense. And when you can infer and make sense of your threats and your attacks and what's really going on, then you're able to manage it better. Whether you're supposed to go and block and tackle it or take a more long-term sort of perspective towards it and fix it or remediate in some way, I think those become more possible. So think of us as the expert system, as the sort of intelligence plane that you need so that every analyst out there becomes thousand X better, thousand X faster, thousand X more efficient than where they are today. You know
0: what? I'm trying to stop myself not to put my architecture head right now and really ask how it's working because literally every fiber in my body right now want to understand how it's working. But we're not going to do this right now because this podcast is not about this. What we will do, I'll put a link to a demo or a link to whatever the best place to learn about the technology. And I think everybody that's listening to this right now or watching this, some of the parts, will be able to go and at least understand what you guys do. So this is very very interesting, and you mentioned you're around a year old. So something happened in your life that triggered you to take this journey, and I would like to know what motivated you. What happened during this time that decided, okay, this is where I want to go? Through.
1: Yeah, there is always like a backstory behind every startup. So. Just to give you a little picture of who I am, Yevgeny, and for the listeners as well. So, I've essentially been an entrepreneur for most of my life. I started, of course, working in larger enterprises in the well established, usual suspect large banks. And I had some really interesting early career in places like Merrill and Goldman and Bank of America Securities, the usual large enterprises. But then I sort of segued off to my entrepreneurial journey way back in the 2000s. And after that, over the last decade or so, I've essentially been in, been lucky, I would say, it's been serendipitous as well, just in a bunch of companies that ended up becoming formidable large companies. And I was in their early journey, right? So for example, I played a role in my zero to one journey at companies like Nutanix and Elementum. And then I was a core member at Medallia and then I ran engineering at StackRox. So a lot of these companies, when I was part of those companies were much smaller. They were really startups and As a key exec there, I had really built companies and helped and played my little sort of two cents there in in their own journeys, right? And benefited from it and of course, contributed immensely towards it. So come pandemic, that's the time when I was thinking about a couple of problem spaces quite a bit. And I've been thinking about it for a while. It wasn't that I was thinking of, hey, let's go start a company. I was just thinking about the problem space at large. And the problem space was largely around this whole sort of thesis around which AI is based. And what was really making me itch was the cyber segment had suddenly grown over the last five, seven years. If you go back to prior to 2010 or so, cybersecurity was still a sort of a specialized domain, with few companies existed there. Not too many people spoke about it in common lingo and common jargon. And then with the rise of internet and the rise of SaaS and the rise of B2B and rise of cloud, suddenly cyber became like a talked about all day long. And mainstream news was talking about hacks and breaches and all kinds of impact that cybersecurity was really having on everyone's lives. And so a number of companies emerged. If you really think about it, post-2010, we've seen hundreds and thousands of companies come up one after the other. But the thing that was really sort of itching me all along was that a lot of them are me-too companies. A lot of them just look like the every other company that I'd heard of the prior week. And the piece that I was thinking was like, what's next? What's What's the new unique way of trying to look at this segment that is close to my heart, places that we work in? And so I really kind of mulled over it. I didn't think of starting a company. I didn't think of a solution. And so during pandemic, which was interesting because things had kind of become very different from the, the, the day-to-day sort of routine had changed for every single person, I was able to dig out and find time from a lot of these security professionals. I would essentially just set up a catch-up meeting and I would chat with them with the only intentional learning, saying like, how do how are you viewing the world? What do you think is going on? Where do you think cybersecurity is headed? Where do you think the gaps are? Why are there those gaps? Why aren't all the smart people doing those things today? And as I was sort of talking to them, I really converged on a couple of ideas, not one, but actually a couple of ideas. And then of course, as an implementer or doer, the idea was, well, which one is more feasible? Which one is something that we can actually bring to market possibly, and maybe even build a company around it, or maybe even build an open source product, who knows, right? So that's when I started brainstorming with a few amazingly smart engineers that I've had the good fortune of working with in the past. And I must say that at some point in time, 2021, we had stumbled upon and it come to this point where it felt like, hey, you know what, this feels exciting. Maybe we should actually do a company around this. So long story short, it wasn't a very deliberate effort of let's go start a company and here's a problem and I'm going to go solve it. It was more of a lot of exploration, a lot of conversations that kind of bubbled up a few things and it felt like, yeah, this is ripe, And I think this is exciting. Right. And I think the, the key turning point in my mind was that it seemed like it was challenging enough that it hadn't been solved. At the same time, it seemed doable, right? So because there are a lot of things in the world that are challenging enough, that are not solved, but extremely difficult to do. This felt like, yeah, we could do it. And that's when we uh, sort of doubled down and uh, organized ourselves and we're a company today, right? So so that's a kind of backstory. Yeah, it was a lot of back and forth exploration that really led to this. So you're
0: talking to people, you have an idea and you see there is a problem you can solve. But this is not enough. You need to actually know that somebody's going to buy this and the market research is fundamentally important. So tell me what you did next to actually understand what you're going to build, people will buy.
1: hundred percent. So I think, like I mentioned, I've been in a lot of these zero to one startup journeys. And the one thing that you learn in Silicon Valley, especially for any engineer who's spent in the exciting world out here, is that there are too many companies that build super awesome products. And when I say super awesome, I mean, from a technical sophistication standpoint that nobody needs. And that's unfortunate, right? And unfortunate because I wish that there could be interesting applications that people could think of before they started down that path of building that amazing technology. And also unfortunate because sometimes they haven't really invested enough in understanding who could really use it or how could it be used. And so they get ultimately shelved or those companies just vanish, right? Now, having been through this and having seen this over the years, in fact, I am as a person hyper paranoid about wanting to make sure that whatever I build does make sense to the buyer, to the end user, not to me as the techie, not to me as the founder, not to me as the CEO, but really more as the end user, right? Like they have to see value. It doesn't matter whether I see value or not. So this time, in fact, what we ended up doing, and this is something that I think is now pretty much become part of my DNA is we ended up speaking to all potential buyers that we could get hold of. So once we figured out like, hey, this is a product that so-and-so kind of a persona would want to use or would need, we said, well, let's get hold of them. And let's get hold of them through our own network, through our friends of friends and everybody else that we've done business with or worked with over the years. And I would just do meetings trying to understand, dig it deeper, both into the problem, but also in terms of where where's the money there, right? Like where are you really spending the money? It's one thing to say that, hey, this is important for me. It's another to say that it's important for me. And it's so important for me that I need to like solve it today. And I need to like put money behind it this morning, right? So so I was trying to like dig that out quite a bit, even before we had a fine-tuned sort of a product or even a company for that matter. We were just talking to a lot of these potential buyers, trying to understand whether this is a real problem or this is a fictitious problem that is nice to have.
0: So you bring in an interesting point here. And I, not me, but the industry called a chicken and egg. Like, what do you sell? So you're selling pretty much a puff of smoke right now, doesn't exist. And you wanna see if people are gonna buy, it, assuming it will work. But do you know, would your idea work as you intended?
1: Yeah, actually, that's a that's a great question, again. One of the other problems we have in our industry, and this I think is very broad in cyber, but also in associated domains, is that a lot of technologies over-promise typically, right? The technologies come out there and they say like, yeah, this is going to solve all the problems that you have. Unfortunately, I think for many products, and not because the intentions are wrong or it's misaligned right from the beginning, but the way it pans out or the way it unfolds it only solves a minuscule or only a small portion of that original promise, right? And so that leaves a lot of the users and buyers very discontented, very, you know, in some sense, uh, very doubtful about many of these newer technologies or newer ways of trying to solve an existing problem. So you're absolutely right. What we did not want to do was really do just smokes and mirrors, right? Like that becomes just in, in general, it becomes too much hype and too less reality. And also doesn't go very well with the kinds of people that we are, right? Like ultimately, you've got to have the personality to pull off that smoke and mirror as well. So I think from our standpoint, the way we went about it was slightly different. We, in fact, with some of them who we knew well and we've done business with, we went there saying, well, we've got a hunch and we've got an idea. We have no product. We haven't built anything. We haven't written a single line of code because this is really almost a couple of years back when we were exploring and when we had kind of converged towards the idea. And really, honestly, we had nothing at that point in time. But we would start telling them and trying to tell them from a conceptual standpoint, like, hey, what if we were able to do something like this? Would that be interesting and useful? And why would you spend money in that? And what would it replace? Or what would it go and add on to, right? So there was a lot of sort of hypothetical what if type of conversations that we engaged in initially, right? Now, post that, what that segued into was once we started having a product come together in the sense, now we had a sense of what the product might look like, how would we build it, what would module one look like, and what would module two look like, and what's the journey in here? Because the most sophisticated products aren't built overnight, right? They're built over a year, two years, three years, even longer. So I think it's important for customers to understand, well, what's now and what's coming six months out, what's coming a year out, what's coming maybe five years out, who knows, Right. So we tried to do that with even drawing screenshots, even from a standpoint of just conceptual proof of concepts type of demos. And we took that back to many of these users. And we showed that to these users and said, well, now what do you think? Last time when we came, we were giving you this hypothetical. So you like baby
0: steps, building blocks. You're building the system. I was giving, getting feedback all the time to see if you're going in the right
1: direction. Exactly. Exactly, and I think that what ended up happening, Evgeny, is, and this is something that I would I would point to very deliberately, is that not all of these conversations turned out to be either smooth or positive for us, and that is okay. That is completely okay. I think, like this is, I'm just speaking broadly for people who build companies, and you know, sometimes people who haven't done this. The expectation we all walk in as, as founders, as sort of creators of new ideas, like, hey, this is awesome. Everyone's going to fall in love with it moment when I open my mouth, right? Like I talk about the concept and everyone's going to be as excited as me. The reality is that it doesn't happen like that, right? There are some people who would, yeah, who would just pick on that idea and love it. Yes, they would be those champions of yours. There would be some others on which it will fall flat. Like you go and tell that idea and they're like, ah. Oh, Maybe, I'm not sure. Like that's the kind of response you might get. I feel those are good responses because that honestly, as a startup, it gives you a more broader picture. You're not living in this false dream of, hey, everything is like great and everything is going to be so fantastic every day and all is going to move smoothly and I'm going to go to the moon straight, right? So that there's no such thing. So I feel like that feedback is also important. And then you can identify from there who you want to work with first. What can you learn from even the people who are not convinced today and so on and so forth.
0: I learned from the people I spoke so far on the podcast is the negative feedback in some cases is much more important than the positive feedback. Because I think as a human being, it's easier for, say, it's easier for us to say how great you are versus to say something negative. And you don't want to end up building a product that everybody says is great, but nobody wants to buy it eventually. And it's an interesting point as well. When I spend a lot of time working in consulting and high consulting, the Group, we always were cautious when we talk to these customers to not show that the baby is ugly. No. But in this case, I think it's okay to say that the baby is ugly and where it is it and why it's ugly to make sure we can change something in the product. I'm going to ask something that I didn't ask people before, and it's not, it's half technical, half not technical, because I think in your case, it is very important. Your product is. <clears throat> in analytics. And this field is very, very important in cybersecurity, but also in a way a bit saturated as well. But from my perspective, I think one of the biggest problems in this field in general and working in managed service provider and with many other companies is how you structure the license, how you make sure people not buying your product with a price of X, and end them paying XXX or YYY in a matter of years.
1: Yeah, it's actually a very good point. I think so. There are there are two things that I want to just kind of chime in on here, Yevgeny. One is you spoke about the fact-negative feedback, and I'm just going to touch upon that very really tiny bit. I know your question is more around pricing, and I would yeah. certainly sort of pick that up. Um, but I do want to acknowledge, I think that what your other guests have mentioned, I would say negative feedback is of much higher value than somebody coming and saying, hey, great job. I love you guys. Right. Because it's good to know. I mean, reinforcement of somebody else also getting excited like you is good. I'm not saying you don't get your positive energy from people, but negative feedback, especially if it's detail oriented, even if, especially if somebody's telling you why it doesn't work or why, where the problem is, actually, I think is one of the key inputs for product strategy. Like when you start thinking about your product and how you think about your users and personas and what you want to build, I feel like that part ends up playing a much bigger role. But anyway, we probably think that's a longer conversation for another time in terms of you know, what you want to do. And in fact, I'm a big believer of uh, this theory, which I think Reed Hoffman, if I'm not mistaken, says that if your first release is something that you're not embarrassed about, you're already too late. I think there is some some sort of a saying that he says. Uh, and I'm a big believer in that. I think it's absolutely true. If if you're waiting for that full bells and whistles, nice, great product, I think it's, it's too late already. Um, in any case, coming back to the pricing model, I think you're absolutely right. The analytics field or the intelligence expert system field or any value-added field there, is today in fact becoming tricky because one vendors want to maximize as much value out of their users who fall in love with them right so people who make those tools as their primary operational tools the vendors definitely want to build their company on those on the shoulders of those users right and so what we do end up seeing is a lot of variable pricing right? A lot of usage-based pricing or a lot of data growth-based pricing. And even, even the market has kind of rewarded that. If you start looking at a lot of the, these data warehousing or analytics players, the market's getting excited about it because they feel like, yeah, you start with X dollars and then finally you end up with multiple Xs after that, right? As you grow, as you get adopted. This is something our users and buyers have also asked us. I think the way I think about this is that it's important in the beginning, especially in the beginning, to go with a more subscription style pricing. And the reason I say that is I think every buyer likes to understand what is it going to cost them one and how does it map to their budgets? Because ultimately everybody's got a finite budget and they've got to up that money across their different programs. And they want to know whether this program is going to be the leaky bucket or this program is going to really kind of respect the budget that I had originally allocated. Minor variations 10% or some variations are okay. People are willing to take that. But certainly, like you said, if it's 2x, 5x, 10x, 20x of what they had thought, I think it causes a lot of dissonance. And I've seen that, especially mid-sized companies, not so much larger companies, because large companies have a different way of decision making and budgeting. The mid-sized companies get very price sensitive. And then they start figuring out ways to actually get rid of you, right? Like a lot of them would start figuring out, okay, what's my alternate product? How do I get rid of this product? I love the product, but it's too expensive. I can't afford it, right? Or they would start finding all kind of workarounds to use a limited edition of your product if there is one. So I think like we don't want to be that company, at least very deliberately. So our idea in the beginning is that there are two things we don't want to restrict in the beginning, for sure. One is some sort of a rapid usage-based pricing growth. Like that is something we want to shy away from because also we're an early stage product and we want people to actually use our product without worrying about what it's going to cost them, at least in the beginning. And then the second part also becomes very important is that we certainly want to stay away from per seat type of pricing whatsoever. Although per seat doesn't even apply so much to the kind of tool that we are, but I think that some companies tend to do per seat, uh, per seat or per node or something like that, especially the per seat license. I think the per seat license, if you ask me, I go the reverse way, is actually the way where you, unless you're a super compelling product, super mature product, or you're a niche product, you're actually doing disservice to yourself. Because the moment you do per seat license, what really ends up happening is that companies then, user companies, in fact, start identifying the limited set of people within their setup who would use your product, right? And they start shying away from broader adoption or they would start reusing those licenses somehow and cheat their way through Typically people don't want to do that in mid to larger organizations so they would just restrict uh, the number of users that uh, would get their hands on your product and what that really ends up happening is going back to your point about not only negative but just feedback as an important input that you get less and lesser feedback. Also I think it uh, runs into this massive risk for any company which is that you might end up becoming a shelfware. And people don't think about that as a big risk, but I think that's a far bigger risk than people not buying you on day one. In fact, I think like if you look at our industry and broader industry around tooling and DevOps and of course security and everything else, you will see that there are a number of products that get bought, but not as used, right? And so they end up becoming shelfware Unfortunately, and then of course, over a period of time, they become less and less popular because nobody's used them. Nobody's figured out how to gainfully integrate it within their larger ecosystem of tools that they've got a larger ecosystem of infrastructure that they have. So I think once you take away the user-centric pricing, uh, you allow them to use your product with freedom. Now, of course, they may like it, not like it. They'll give you feedback. And if you're willing to work with the feedback and make the product more and more useful over a period of time, more and more pertinent for the end user, then you know, you'll see success. So I think that's the way, at least, I have my mental model around this pricing.
0: I want to switch a bit gears, not fully, but a bit. There's quite a bit of shortage of smart people on the market. I guess it's good in some way because we have... Make it may have attract more young people to be in our, in our cybersecurity world. How do you deal with this? We need to hire people we
1: need to actually develop the model for you. You mean in terms of own hiring? Yes. Oh, yeah, yeah. So talent shortage is real. I'm with you on that. But one, firstly, in general, when you're building a startup, and especially in your early journeys, the the biggest dichotomy that happens, or the biggest struggle that happens is that you want to hire the smartest people. Why? Because, well, of course, you've got a challenging problem to solve. You also want them to be very motivated. You've got a lot of work to to be done. And you want them to be smart and creative and focused. All those good things that come with sharp initial sort of a talent pool, Right. But these same people are usually the ones who also have a number of different options, right? And that pool, as you rightly said, is super limited, right? Not only is a broader pool limited, that pool is even more limited because these are the same set of talented engineers or talented product people or talented marketing people or the talented designers that everybody wants to hire. Not only your competitor wants to hire them, the larger company wants to hire them and uh, the, the user and user company wants to hire them and everybody's wanting to make them absolutely more and more excited with more compensation, more benefits, larger titles and what have you, right? So they've got this continuous tussle, I think, of on one side, the limited pool and the second side, the number of options that the same people have. And so then the question becomes, well, how do you attract them, right? Like what what gets you going to convince them to be part of your journey as opposed to some other journey? And I think the way the way I think about this is, and this is something that I believe over the years I have learned a lot around, just having built a lot of very interesting deep tech and core engineering centric and very smart product centric people in this space, right? The largest space of security and also infrastructure and cloud and ML and all that space. I feel like I think there needs to be a slight approach change when you're hiring people at this level. And the approach change is that you have to start Thinking people in terms of those who are seeking jobs, those who are wanting to build a career in this space and grow, right? So they're there to learn. And then there are the third types that I call the missionary variety, right? The people who are passionate about it and want to solve the problem and they don't care about titles. They don't care about the other things. They, they care about the interesting challenge. They, they really do care about the journey. Right. The, the third type's a few and far between, but I think, yeah, if you can get hold of the third type, the missionary variety, if you may, I think definitely go hire them. I deliberately try to always hire some of those people. These are also the kinds of people who are building amazing software on their own as well. right? These are usually the kinds of people who are also making great open source software or educating the community or doing so many other things right, out there. Uh, within the the ones within job and career, I tend to go more with the people who want to build a career. So in fact, even now, the the ones we have been able to hire, I think they're incredibly smart engineers. Many of these people were outstanding people in their own right, in terms of their own capabilities, also had a ton of choices. And in fact, when we were interviewing them, and it's pretty hard, by the way, to get into Uno, not because we want to make it a selective place, but we want to make sure it's the right place for the right person. Right. So we go extra mile in making sure there's great alignment, that there's a talent pool, and you know, there's also a lot of excitement in being part of this journey. What we really saw was that people who wanted to build a career, people who wanted to learn, people who wanted to grow, people who wanted to work on something exciting, ultimately, those are the ones that also got excited about joining our journey, and we got excited about hiring them, right? And so that's how we kind of built. It's very hard, though. I mean, that I can totally acknowledge. It's not easy, and it's time-consuming. Companies not around for
0: a very long time but you guys have been around and the product is GA and you guys are already selling. If you can go back in time a bit and give an advice to yourself, what is the advice you will give to yourself to maybe become more productive, better, or whatever you think is valuable for you?
1: Yeah, so we had a young company. I mean, Uno is not, not a very mature, very seasoned company. It is still young and it's growing fast. However, I think you ask a very good question, which is if you were to go back in time, what are you going to do differently, right? What advice are you going to give yourself so that you could be better, faster, more efficient, right? I think I would just go back to doing a couple of things. One is that our strength so far has been speed of execution. We move at a very fast pace and we have been really building stuff at, at an outstanding pace, I would say, right, just compared to industry at large. However, having said that, we did spend some cycles in areas where we could have avoided spending some cycles. Those cycles were deliberating over things a little bit around product strategy deliberating over some aspects of pieces around which customers or which people should we speak to first to get feedback i feel like now i would err on the side of just moving faster there too what it would have done for us is it would have saved us some more time right now again it's not a disaster in the longer picture of scene of things but i think like Time is of essence when you're starting. So anything that you can accelerate, anything that you can do faster, I think is usually better. So that's certainly something I would do, right? A, a tweaking that would help us. The other piece that I think I would certainly tell myself, which I'm more now doing so, is um, just divvying up the big dream into what that those pieces look like. So when you start any company, you're usually very ambitious, right? You're very optimistic. I mean, that's why you start a company. (laughs) But uh, the reality is, and in this case, we are seasoned operators. We've been along these journeys in the past. So I think the reality is that not everything just pans out as planned. Not everything is a straight line, right? And so... Usually, if you divvy up your journey into small milestones and small chunks early on, right from day zero, one, it helps you iterate in a more meaningful way. And secondly, I think it helps you give a lot more positive energy sooner Right, and so I think we did that now, and now we do that actively. On we have plans, which are the big plans, and then there are the weekly plans and two week plans, and the monthly kind of goals that we've got of what we want to achieve on all fronts. Right, product development front, company growth front, customer feedback front. But I think that I would encourage myself that I should have done that even from day zero. While you remain excited about your big goal, break it down. And say, hey, what do I want to do in my first week? What is my small goal at the end of first week that would feel like success. What does success look, look like right at that point in time? I think giving that up is probably a good idea. And we do that now, but I think we should have done that sooner.
0: So let's completely switch topics, switch topics, switch gears. We're going to go talk about the dark side. If you guys are still listening to us, please don't forget to subscribe and comment. And also, maybe if you, can, if you want if you can support us on Patreon as well. We're going to have the podcast. And I want to talk about dark side. So tell me about dark days. What's went wrong? Maybe investor meetings, you mentioned a couple of chat with the customers, definitely don't need to mention the customers, but some of the things that you wish didn't happen in your life as part of of the journey.
1: Yeah, one one piece that I'd like to answer by first maybe stating a couple of things. I think if you are not living the life inside as an entrepreneur and you largely understand entrepreneurship from tech crunch articles and all the social media news, you would feel like it's all happy times all day long. The world is a, a fantastic place where everybody's succeeding every minute of their lives. The reality is quite starkly opposite. So I think like there are there are two or three things that we certainly went through those and we continue to go through those emotions that I can, I can definitely share about. One is that on a given day, on a single given day, we had situations where talking about investors, like you said, or talking about even customers, we would go and we would get a lot of positive feedback in one meeting. Let's say in in the morning, we, we we take a meeting and they're super thrilled, super excited about what we're building, about who we are. They want to go with us and we are all charged up, right? Like we are all like top of the sky, just totally thrilled. And then we go to our next meeting at let's say noon and those people just have starkly opposite pieces. The demo falls apart. It doesn't work. All the bugs that we have wanted, which we'd never discovered when we were testing, gets discovered during the demo. And then the feedback from the customer is like, hey, you guys are not ready. I'm not even sure what your product does. Maybe come back to me, right? And so it's a very disappointing type of a meeting, right? Where on multiple levels, just in terms of our professionalism, just in terms of our readiness, in terms of our thesis, nothing goes right, right? Like all of them sort of go wrong. And it all happens in a span of three hours, right? The morning starts with super energy. And three hours later, you're like in deep depression. I think like that's really where the startup world really is, and I think most founders would agree with me on this. That every day is a massive roller coaster, and emotions are just flowing all the time because this is your baby. You're deeply invested in it, and so there are moments, there interactions that feed on that positive energy. Get super thrilled, super excited. You're on top of the world, and then. Immediately after on the same day, whatever it may be, a customer feedback, investor feedback, a person that you wanted to hire who you thought you were closing and then finally says, sorry, I'm not going to join you to all kinds of other things that happened, right? Like bugs or whatever product things that you thought you'd completed, but now you've opened a whole new can of worms and various other feeds just like pull you down. Right and so that's just the nature of the game. There are days when you have multiple emotions within a span of a couple of hours. I feel like that can be very taxing honestly. Like so how do you
0: deal with this? How do you deal when you say you end of the day you completely drained. What do you do? Like for sure you're going to come back tomorrow and doing this. But you want to kind of get over this I'm guessing. You don't want to just to do... How do you say it correctly? I feel like if you have many of these days and you don't have approaching systems to overcome the problem, you will become very miserable eventually. It could be fishing, it could be sport, meditation. I think everybody is different. And I'm wondering what do you do to help you switch and become more happy?
1: Right. Yeah. So I think that's, that's a great question again. I think the key here really, at least in my opinion, is internalizing it and understanding what's going on. So when I was my younger self, if you may, years back when I first started doing it, my first impulse would be to, to brush it off. Right, like basically, kind of ignore it, or convince myself to ignore it, which is okay. There's nothing wrong with it. But I'm saying like that was my defense mechanism. Things that would pull me down in my entrepreneurial journey, I'm like, ah, okay, ignore it. Things are going to be better tomorrow. Just kind of shower yourself with optimism. That's what I used to do earlier. I think over the years, my psyche and way of managing this has changed substantially. Now I think I've become more of a realist. So the way I deal with this today is just with that same sort of lens of realism. What I do is I go back. And I usually spend every day, especially in the evenings at towards the end of the day, a little time where I reflect on some of these issues. So I try to react less immediately, just kind of hold on to my emotions as much as I can. I am emotional, so I would feel those, but I would just hold on, go through the motions of the day, complete the task. And then end of the day, kind of go and reflect on it on saying, hey, what are the key learnings? How bad was it really? And how good was it really? Both sides, not just the good and the bad. Did I amplify the good? Did I get more depressed than I should have been on the bad? And what could we have? What could we change next time? What's the learning from here? And kind of analytically, I try to parse it through. And I've usually, realized when you reason analytically through anything, after a while, the emotional aspects of it really get cut off. Then it looks like an event with some positive things happen and some negative things happen. You are trying to now you are Trying to get to the point of what can I improve? What can I not do? What can I ignore? Right? So I think like it becomes a little bit more of a, an analytical reasoning type exercise, less of an emotional exercise. And so that sort for me reflecting. has been a way to cope with things. But you know, people are different. For example, my co founder has a very different way of dealing with it. I mean, he's just a very calm guy. So the way I think he has convinced himself over the years is that he, he just stays calm. And he reflects over it. Uh, more in person and sometimes we chat about it there are always these conversations conversations about whether this was really that bad should we have done something differently is the calm people
0: people is the calm people calm when something bad and something good in the same level because if the person is very calm and something good happening will he still become calm stay home calm or he will actually be happy and show emotions
1: yeah so that's what I'm saying like I think I am one of those who gets happiness amplifies it I get super happy. And if things get difficult and there are difficult moments, like I said, every day, it impacts me. I start thinking, right? So I would avoid being too depressed or too moved by it or be sudden. But at the end of the day, it's on my mind, right? It's playing on my mind and I'm thinking about it very actively. So it's certainly having those emotions, right? Like inside me for sure. But uh, I think that some people can remain calm and that is also a huge sort of good factor there, a good complementing factor, right? Where one person is high on emotion, the other person is a little more calm on emotion. And then, then that way you have a good realistic sort of conversation. The other part I want to mention, and this is something that comes from my own years of being more of a sports and outdoorsy person. And I kind of bring a lot of those learnings to my everyday work life is. I usually think of, and I'm not doing that as much actively these days, but I used to do a lot of long distance running. So I'm a marathon runner. I would do a lot of those running and I would go races after races over the years. And one of the things I had learned there was, it was not about the mile that you were running. It was about the miles that you're going to run. So like you could be a great first three miles. It has nothing about the 26.2 that finally you will end up with, right? So the, the first three miles has very little, your emotion in the first three miles has very little to do with your final, final run. And so when you start divvying up your run like that, right, like where you start thinking in terms of, okay, this was a incident, this was just the half a mile in my long sort of mileage that I have to run. Uh, you start rationalizing it a bit better because now you're thinking about it. As, okay, that's great. Okay, this was good and this was not so good, but I've got so many more miles to run. So no problems. I can just go back and keep applying it. You also realize from your any endurance sport or long distance sport is that even there, if you really think about it, the entire episode there really ends up becoming uh, times when it becomes very challenging, when you don't feel like doing it. But when you do it, when you complete it, It's extremely exciting, right? Like you feel really thrilled about it at the end of the journey. But during the journey, you don't feel that, you know, that great, right? And so I feel like I think this is something where, um, once you have that mindset where good things are coming, there is a lot more learning coming, there's a lot more exciting times coming ahead of us. I think that can also help you stay motivated, stay on course, look at the bigger picture and just kind of go along with that. So I think that is also an important part of the puzzle. Like, Don't get sucked into a lot of the small things that happen all day long because yes, some things will be great and some things won't. And this is something that I've learned over a period of time and certainly have brought in from my things beyond work, right? Because that's how I kind of cope up with things there. There are days when the deep pain in the legs, but when I was training actively, I would still go run. Right. It's one of those. It's not comfortable. It's not nice. You've woken up early in the morning with a deep pain and you're still running. Well, that's what entrepreneurship feels like, right? On some days. So
0: thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's very interesting that every time I speak with somebody that has his own company, they, in a way, have very similar advice about the roller and changes, but also different advice because everybody's journey is unique. Everybody's journey is different. Thank you very much for being here today. And I hope we'll talk to you in other podcasts as well. Thank you very much.
1: Thank you, Egwene. Thanks for having me on the show. And that was wonderful chatting with you.
0: For everybody that's listening, thank you very much. Don't forget to subscribe and follow us. We will see you in the next episode.